Good morning, everybody. It's not every day in your, your life as an actuary that you get to introduce somebody who's both an accountant and an advocate. It's my very warm pleasure to welcome Francois Gruppe today, the Deputy Governor of the South African Reserve Bank. And Francois will enlighten us with an update on the SA economy and the role of the bank in the new regulatory environment. Francois was first appointed by the President to the board of the South African Reserve Bank as a non-executive director more than 10 years ago. And in 2012, moved into the um, executive as, uh, as uh, the, the deputy governor. He serves as the chairman of both the South African Mint and the South African Banknote Company, so a master of all things money, as well as on the MPC, the Monetary Policy Committee, the Financial Stability Committee, and it says here on the Governor's Execute Committee. Francois, <laughs> is that the execution of or by Governors? <laughs> He also has a distinguished private sector career, having formerly been uh, MD, Group MD, and CEO of Media24, and as you would expect, a very distinguished academic career, um, BCom Honours, MBA, LRM, and a postgrad diploma in tax law. Francois, thanks very much for raising the average IQ in the room, and we look forward to hearing from you. <clears throat> Um, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I feel at a bit of a disadvantage having to follow on Jonathan. Um, the second disadvantage I always feel when I have to address gatherings such as these is that, of course, being a central banker, we're not at liberty to speak ad lib. We have to unfortunately stick to a prepared speech because um, we need to ensure that everybody gets the same message and typically our speeches are published, so the speech will be released at 10 a.m. on the website of the bank. So unfortunately, I can't be entertaining, but given the fact that our host uh, this today is the Actuarial Society, I thought I'll start on a lighter note and relate to you the story of the three actuaries and the three accountants that had to travel to a risk conference, and uh, they queued up to buy the tickets, and the three accountants bought the, of course, first-class tickets, and um, paid and moved on. But as they were moving and approaching the platform, they noticed these three actuaries in the queue, and were quite amazed that these three chaps only bought one ticket. So were totally puzzled. But anyway, they boarded the train, and um, asked the actuaries, "So, why only buy?" one ticket. They said, well, just watch us. So the three accountants take their seats in the first-class carriage, and the three actuaries move to the bathroom of the first-class carriage, all three of them. And the conductor comes around, and he looks at the tickets, and um, then approaches the bathroom, knocks on the door. One hand comes out, shows the ticket. Guy clips the ticket. They shut the door. And so the accountants have figured out, okay, this is this guy's strategy. They go to the risk conference, totally enthused about their newly found and gained knowledge. And as they get back to the train station, the accountants decided they're going to do um, and mimic what the actuaries did, so they only buy one ticket. Lo and behold, as they're about to board, they notice that the actuaries didn't buy any tickets. 
So they're totally puzzled. And they ask, no, what are you going to do? So just watch us. So the three accountants huddle into the bathroom of the first class carriage. And lo and behold, the three actions also bundle, handle, huddle in the, in the bathroom, in the other bathroom. And they're waiting and the journey progresses and the accountants here knock on the door, they stick out their hand to present the ticket. One of the actions grabs the ticket and goes run to the <laughs> other bathroom. Good, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. It's indeed. A, now we know which ones are the actions in the room. They're the ones that were slow in the uptake. Um, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. It's a great pleasure to be with you here in Cape Town. Cape Town is my hometown, and I'm always pleased to return here. Thank you for inviting me to speak to, uh, to you this, at this seminar, and I look forward to sharing my views on the recent international <laughs> economic developments, the outlook for the domestic economy, as well as inform you of some of the changes to the financial regulatory architecture. Starting with the global outlook, the global environment facing South Africa remains challenging and fraught with a high degree of uncertainty. Developments in the US, in particular, continue to have spillover effects on emerging markets in general, and in South Africa in particular. While it is clear that monetary policy normalization will and should take place, the timing of the initial liftoff is still uncertain. And dependent on domestic developments in the US, not least their labor market. This makes each data release a source of volatility with good news in the payroll data generally being interpreted that it will bring forward the expected commencement date of the normalization process. Perhaps of greater importance than the lift of itself is the question of the future path of interest rates. The US Fed has gone to great pains to communicate a gradual path, but the dots, which is the interest rate forecast of the individual members that illustrate this, are subject to a high degree of dispersion and change from meeting to meeting. This reflects the high degree of uncertainty. Uncertainties in the US economy, however, abound. The economy appeared to be well on the road to recovery in the second half of last year, but the first quarter data disappointed following an advanced estimate growth rate of 0.2%. Now just bear in mind that that is down from about 5% in the third quarter of 2014. The general expectation is that this was due to temporary factors, but this still remained that it could portend a more general extended slowdown. Furthermore, there is still uncertainty regarding the improvement in the labor market, in particular, where the improvement is a result of the decline in the labor force participation rates, which could reverse should the improvement in the economy be sustained. Finally, there is still a great deal of uncertainty about whether potential growth rates will return to pre-crisis levels or settle at a lower level, and this is likely to have implications for the longer-term neutral rate of interest. The Eurozone appears to be improving following a weak few quarters, with positive growth impulses from the weaker euro and lower oil prices. The partial reversal of the oil price suggests that this impulse may be waning. It does, however, appear that the quantitative easing by the ECB is bearing fruit, but the question remains as to whether the region can sustain the recovery without this support. A question mark also remains 
regarding the possible contagion effect from the Greek debt crisis. The market reaction to date suggests that this is more contained, unlike the more generalized crisis in 2011, when risk premium on all peripheral eurozone bonds widened significantly. The Chinese economy continues to focus on rebalancing away from investment to domestic consumption. This has resulted in a downward revision of growth targets, but it also has meant the demand for commodities is not as strong as it was previously. While a growth rate of 7% would seem unattainable for South Africa, it is relatively low by recent historical standards for China. Turning to the domestic economic outlook, the spillovers onto South Africa from these developments are significant. The US impact is through the exchange rate and long-term bond yields, which are highly correlated with those, particularly in the UK. The Eurozone is an important destination for South Africa's manufactured ex exports, so a slow recovery is bad for the manufacturing sector, while the until recently weaker Euro means that a competitive advantage from a weaker end is undermined. Although the African continent, which has been growing quite robustly, has emerged as one of the main destinations of South Africa's manufactured exports, there are downside risks to the continent's growth prospects given the decline in the oil and other commodity prices. The slowdown in China has had a marked impact on global commodity prices, resulting in a deterioration of South Africa's terms of trade, which was only reversed to some extent with the collapse of international oil prices since late last year. But even this windfall has reversed somewhat. So all in all, we are indeed facing a challenging international environment. However, it would be wrong to suggest that the subdued outlook for the domestic economy is purely a function of global developments. Domestic factors are also important, and some of them are of our own making. The real GDP for the first quarter of this year slowed down to 1.3% compared to the 4.1%, and that is quarter-on-quarter seasonally adjusted, recorded in the final quarter of 2014. This is against the backdrop of the sluggish growth rate of 1.5% for 2014, and which is well below the bank's estimate of potential output of between 2 and 2.5%. The weak outcome last year was partly due to the impact of protracted strikes in the mining and manufacturing sectors during the year. The bank estimates the negative impact of these strikes to be in the vicinity of around 1.2 percentage points of GDP. Hopefully, prolonged work, work stoppages will not be a regular feature each year. The question we need to ask ourselves is why the growth prognosis is so weak. Some of it has to do with the global economy, as I've outlined earlier, but there are clearly binding constraints coming from the electricity supply uncertainties. Our estimates of growth tries to incorporate some element of the impact of load shedding on output. And there are two elements here. One is the impact, of course, of the longer-term constraints which hamper new investment and which is reflected in the overall power, lower potential output. The other is the impact of load shedding on existing capacity and therefore on current output. We estimate the latter factor to be in the order of magnitude of around 0.5 percentage points of GDP. 
Load shedding appears to have contributed to a general low level of business confidence, as evident in the various confidence indices, but also evident in the very low growth in private sector gross fixed capital formation. In 2014, gross fixed capital formation contracted by 0.4%, driven mainly by the 3.4% contraction investment by the private sector, which accounts for just under two-thirds of total capital formation within our economy. On a more positive note, in the second half of the year, growth was positive, a reversal of the strongly negative trends observed in the first half of the year. However, Supply-side constraints and low confidence are likely to constrain stronger growth. It is worth noting that the more favorable fixed investment outcomes observed in 2013 were mainly related to renewable energy projects. The main driver of growth in recent years has been the consumption expenditure by households. However, the contribution to growth in 2014 declined by one percentage point to 0.8 percentage points. While we'd prefer to have investment-driven growth, even consumption has been relatively subdued for some time, declining to 1.4 percent in 2014 compared with 2.9 percent in 2013. A further concern has been the recent sharp drop in consumer confidence, which, according to the BER, the FNBBR survey, reach a level of minus four in the first quarter of the year, compared to an average of plus five. Factors undermining consumer confidence include the partial reversal of the boost to consumption provided by the lower petrol prices, the increase in the marginal tax rate in the February budget, high levels of household indebtedness despite some deleveraging, and continued weak growth in credit extension to households. Employment growth trends are also not supportive in this respect, and I think we all saw the numbers that came out yesterday. And although wage growth remains relatively high, the positive net impact on consumption could be offset to some extent by the negative impact on employment from relatively high wage growth. Inflation is currently well within the inflation target band of 3 to 6 percent. However, the focus on monetary policy is not current inflation, which is something, frankly, that we cannot do anything about, but rather on the inflation trajectory of the relevant policy horizon, i.e., the time period of which monetary policy can have an impact on inflation, and which is approximately 12 to 18 months ahead. Headline CPI inflation accelerated to 4.5% in April, which is at the midpoint of the target range. The main drivers of the annual increase were housing and utilities, which contributed some 1.3 percentage points, miscellaneous goods and services, which contributed about 1.1 percentage points, as well as food and non-alcoholic beverages, which contributed 0.8 percentage points. Seems when South Africans are unhappy, they eat food and drink non-alcoholic beverages. On a monthly basis, headline CPI inflation increased by 0.9 percentage points, up from the recent low of 3.9 percent in February, and which is mainly attributable to the previous decline in the petrol price, which has largely been reversed. As noted in our monetary policy statement last week, inflation is expected to accelerate in the coming months and is expected to rise to 6.8 percent on average for the quarter, 
thus temporarily breaching the upper end of the headline inflation target range during the first quarter of 2016. The CPI inflation rate is expected to average 6.1% and 5.7% for 2016 and 2017 respectively. Core inflation is forecast to average 5.4% and 5.2% in the outer two years with the persistence in this measure larger being attributed to high levels of wage growth, currency depreciation, and inflation expectations that are anchored at the upper end of the target range. There are a number of upside risks to this outlook. The main one emanates from the exchange rate, given the range sensitivity to imminent U.S. federal monetary tightening, that is the U.S. Federal Reserve monetary tightening. South Africa, along with other emerging markets with wide current account and fiscal deficits, are seen to be particularly vulnerable. However, there is a great deal of uncertainty in this regard. How much is already priced into the exchange rate, for example? Will any weakening be a temporary overshoot? To what extent is the offset by QE in the Eurozone and Japan possible? We should also recognize the domestic factors also play a role, including the persistently wide current account deficit, weak growth outlook and uncertainty arising from the binding electricity constraints, and finally, in this regard, there is uncertainty regarding the degree of pass-through from the depreciation, from the RAND depreciation to inflation. We have seen far more muted pass-through in the past few years than during the previous episodes of RAND depreciation, and the bank estimates that actual pass-through could be about half of what is assumed in our forecast model. We assume in our forecast model about a 20% pass-through. The uncertainty is whether this represents some form of structural change or whether it is cyclical, in which case it will increase when growth picks up or whether some inflection point exists beyond which inflation will accelerate on the back of a depreciated currency. A further issue relates to electricity prices. There is some uncertainty following the application to NERSA for a 25% increase in electricity tariffs. The bank's model previously incorporated an increase of around 13% effective from the 1st of July 2015. But should a high increase be granted, we will see further upside pressure on inflation. I'm sure some of you are trading. I see you're busy with your smartphones. The above backdrop provides a difficult challenge for monetary policy. It is clear that the main pressures on inflation are supply-side shocks, rather than demand pressures, pressures which are easier to deal with through monetary policy. At the same time, the growth outlook remains highly constrained. We, however, cannot simply ignore supply-side developments, as in so doing, we could allow inflation expectations to become unanchored. Furthermore, the MPC is concerned about the persistence of the medium-term inflation outlook at heightened levels and the significant upside risk to this outlook, and which include electricity tariff increases, the exchange rate, and levels of wage settlements. Our focus is therefore sharply on possible second-round effects of these shocks to see the spillovers into whether it spills over into more generalized inflation. Monetary policy has been accommodative, which has been appropriate in the light of the weak real economy. 
We are, however, in a hiking cycle and the deteriorating inflation outlook may necessitate policy action as the window for an unchanged stance has narrowed. The pace of normalization will, however, be influenced by the data. Turning to the regulatory reforms. As you are no doubt aware, the bank's mandate has been broadened to more explicitly include financial stability. Following the global financial crisis, it became clear that price stability is a necessary but insufficient condition for financial stability. And it has now become a more explicit mandate of central banks in many countries. While the price stability mandate of the Saab is clearly defined and measurable, its mandate for financial stability is much broader and is a shared responsibility with our other stakeholders. The National Treasury published a policy document in February 2011 titled A Safer Financial Sector to Serve South Africa Better, which outlines government's decision to shift to a Twin Peaks model of financial sector regulation. The Twin Peaks model of financial regulation represents a move away from a fragmented regulatory approach which was based on the institution or activity towards a regulatory and supervision model based on objectives. It is envisaged that once fully implemented, the Twin Peaks system of regulation will focus on a more harmonized system of licensing, supervision, enforcement, customer complaints, an appeal and review mechanism, and consumer advice and education. The National Treasury published the second draft of the Financial Sector Regulation Bill in December 2014, and this bill proposes to confer upon the bank the responsibility for financial stability and the oversight of market infrastructure and payment systems. It further proposes the establishment of two regulators, namely a prudential authority within the bank and a new financial sector conduct authority. The prudential authority would supervise the safety and soundness of banks, insurance companies, and other financial institutions, or the market conduct authority would supervise the way in which financial services firms conduct themselves and treat their customers. This reform forms part of the current broader overall of the global regulatory system which aims to address the too big to fail problem of systemically important financial institutions, building resilient financial institutions, reducing the opacity of the over-the-counter derivatives markets, mitigating the impact of shadow banking on financial stability, enhancing financial ben benchmark transparency, and promoting the convergence of accounting standards. Within each of these themes, there are a number of regulatory initiatives, such as the regulation of systemically important financial institutions under the too big to fail problem, Basel III, and proposals for a basic capital requirement for insurers to strengthen the theme of building resilient financial institutions. The bank's main activities in the financial stability arena currently include developing and implementing recovery and resolution plans for systemically important financial institutions, introducing a macroprudential toolkit of policy instruments to contain risk associated with imbalances in the financial systems and applying a top-down stress testing framework to the banking sector in South Africa. Although the bank's financial stability mandate 
is distinct from its price stability mandate, careful consideration is continuously given to the interaction between the bank's monetary policy and financial stability objectives. This coordination is facilitated by cross-membership between the bank's monetary policy and financial stability committee structures. The main risks from the global and domestic environments that might impact the stability of the domestic financial system and that are monitored continuously in terms of possible mitigating actions include the possible possibility of a severe electricity supply disruption, volatility and risk aversion in global financial markets, a protracted period of slow growth in the euro area, low growth in the domestic economy and the escalation of global geopolitical tensions. These possible scenarios of potential threats to financial stability are rated according to the likelihood of occurrence and the expected impact on the domestic financial system. And the results are captured in the risk assessment matrix and published in the latest financial stability review, which was released at the end of April. This publication is aimed at analyzing these potential risks to financial stability and to stimulate debate on pertinent financial stability issues. I wish to conclude by saying it is clear that although the global recovery has started to gain momentum, it continues to be erratic and there are a number of downside risks to the global economic growth outlook. The recent partial rebound in the price of crude oil has immediated some of the benefits arising from its early sharp decline. A further risk is a possible Brexit and other geopolitical risks. On the domestic front, Growth continues to disappoint, and the medium-term growth outlook is likely to be constrained due to the binding electricity constraints. The inflation outlook has deteriorated to uncomfortable levels recently, with inflation expectations remaining close to the upper end of the target, and with further notable upside risks to the outlook. The scale of the regulatory reform process underway is probably the most significant overall of the financial regulatory architecture in the last few decades. Despite its ambitious scale, the bank is making good progress in preparing itself to take up its new responsibilities as set out in the financial sector regulation bill. I thank you for your attention and for not selling and shorting too many shares whilst I was speaking. Unfortunately, the media is here, so I will have to be constrained in my responses to your questions. <coughs> Especially for Nelly Brandt. <laughs> Thank you, Francois. Uh, yeah, uh, I can turn it over to the floor. Opportunity for questions. We have one here. I don't think it might be necessary. If you just speak clearly for the benefit of those at the back of the room. Um, Marius, when I was at Merrill Lynch, we coined uh, a phrase called great rotation. Um, and it looks like we now are heading that way. That basically that the, the Fed um, would stop the easing process and that um, yields on treasuries would start going up and that there would be less reason for investors to be investing in emerging markets where you get higher yield. Um, is this not a substantial risk uh, to South Africa where portfolio flows have really uh, bolstered uh, I guess the currency and the equity market in South Africa over the last uh, five or so years? I think let's take a, a number of questions. Um, so your question is specifically on the impact on the equity in the bond markets in emerging markets and specifically South Africa. And, and obviously the 
Let's take two or three questions. Um, it's Louis speaking. Um, I would like to have your view on how the SAAB is managing the liquidity risk in the economy with the implementation of Basel III and Solvency II at the same time. Any other questions? Not for now, you're the guard. So the first question basically turns around the impact of uh, normalization. Um, Look, it is very clear that one of the issues that is well known is that there's about a 60% correlation between U.S. interest rates and global interest rates. So the reality of it is, um, as yields rise in the U.S., that is bound to have spillover effects to the rest of the world. You were asking me whether the currency in particular will be affected, and I think in my speech I alluded to the fact that who knows to what extent the market has discounted and prepared for normalization. What we do see is a lot of volatility, when, uh, whether there's good or bad news. But it is very unclear to determine to what extent the market has already discounted the normalization path in. Because if you look at the currency, it has um, depreciated by quite a significant extent since the taper tantrum started in May 2013. So it's very difficult to make a call as to whether there is further depreciation awaiting us per se, um, because it's quite difficult to assess to what extent um, the normalization path has been discounted in. Secondly, I think that emerging markets, to some extent, if you take the average growth in emerging markets vis-a-vis -vis advanced economies, yes, emerging market growth outlook has deteriorated somewhat, but there is still some margin between the advanced economies' growth rates and that of the emerging markets. And so by definition, um, there is probably less of a carry trade, but there will always still be a carry trade uh, as people seek yield. Um, the second issue is how emerging markets will be impacted. I think it's very difficult to call because I think it depends on the macroeconomics fundamentals of each economy. My own assessment is, is that the international investment community will not just simply and mass withdraw from emerging markets, but that they will um, differentiate between different emerging markets based on uh, macroeconomic fundamentals. And clearly countries that do have uh, wide fiscal and um, current account deficits are probably likely to be more vulnerable than others. In terms of Basel III and solvency, um, obviously it's something that we monitor and uh, some of you would be aware of the fact that we announced the um, uh, committed liquid facility, um, the LCF liquid committed facilities that we um, have made available. So in a way we are monitoring this. Um, regulatory reform does not happen in a vacuum and obviously we monitor a whole bunch of of parameters across the economy and um, we'll be watching that situation closely. Any other questions? Yeah, there's one at the back from Neil. Uh, right, I've got a question on the, on, on the right guys. Uh, uh, do you also look at the source of the flight? Do you get the cost of inflation? Do you get the monster inflation? Do you see like inflation uh, over the last few years or different cost? Like, 
<laughs> we'll take another question. I'll get back to your question, don't worry. Um, I would like to know how does the regent, recent public sector wage agreement compare to the bank's expectation thereof leading up to the agreement? Francois, if I can add one into the mix, um, I'd like to ask your perspectives on Grexit. And the possibility, it seems to be a very complicated egg to unscramble, and just uh, how that would filter down to your world and our world. The fun about central banking is, of course, we're in the business of crystal ball gazing at times. Coming back, of course, it does matter as to whether it is demand or supply side and that is informing inflation. In South Africa, certainly, um, I've been with the bank as an executive for this is my fourth year. Um, and generally, there's an absence of demand side pressures on inflation. However, and so therefore, monetary policy is, is, more, is less potent to deal with supply side shocks to inflation than with demand side shocks. But, and I have outlined that in my speech, what you do watch for carefully is the emergence of second round effects in response to the supply side shocks. So example, electricity prices supply side shock, right? But if that then leads to wage pressures, so people say, well, our cost of living has gone up, so we need to get higher wage settlements, and that feeds through the economy in terms of um, contributing to the buildup of price pressures, the central bank will respond. And so, what we certainly consider that, but therefore we are very, very aware and watch very closely to see whether there's emergence of second and third round effects, irrespective of whether the source is a supply side shock. Unfortunately, I cannot share with you. I have said, I actually gave you the answer to that speech. I said that um, the degree of tightening will be data dependent. So <laughs> I, I, I gave you. I expected that question, so I gave you the answer. Um, the second issue is I don't think it would be appropriate for us to comment on the specific um, settlement reach. I think we are all still um, trying to understand exactly what are the implications because there's a headline increase. But remember, there were also changes to the proposed uh, medical aid contribution. I think the numbers I read was a 28% increase in the subsidy for that, and the second component is the increase of the housing subsidy from 900 rand to 1200 rand. So it's difficult. I haven't seen the final figure, but I don't think it would be totally appropriate for us. We would tend to comment in general about wage settlements. We won't comment on specific wage settlements agreements that had been reached. I think the issue of a Grexit, funny enough, I actually did some thinking and reading up on this just this past few days. Um, it's quite difficult, I, I think, because first of all, one of the things that people don't always appreciate, we are in uncharted waters. The, and I mean, I've just the past few days did a lot of reading, again, of the global financial crisis and how it's played out and what are some of the factors that had played a role. And of course, we have had a period of unprecedented injection of liquidity in the global financial system. Um, 
my estimate would be it is north of about 15 trillion US dollars. If you just look at the extent to which central banks have swollen their balance sheets, I mean, I think the US Fed's balance sheet has ballooned to something like in the order of magnitude of about 4.5 trillion US dollars. To give you an idea, I was unfortunately trapped in um, New York during Storm Sandy. And at the time as that had occurred, they were talking about estimates of total damages of probably about 50 to 70 billion US dollars. Uh, that was the week that I was there. It was actually just the week before the US election. Some of you work in the insurance industry and may have a different number to which it totally uh, amounted. But at its peak of its asset purchase program, bear in mind the US Fed was buying assets, financial assets, to the tune of 80 billion US dollars per month. And that gives you an idea as to just the extent of the liquidity injection. So the first point I want to make is that, and, and bear in mind that this global financial crisis has been equated um, to the greatest recession since the Great Depression in, 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 in 1929 to 1932. And how it will unwind because the process of normalization globally will be a protracted process because the U.S. concluded last year the first phase of on the way towards normalization, which was the tapering of asset purchases program. And that has been concluded. The next phase is obviously interest rates normalization. Question is, does U.S. interest rates go back to pre-crisis levels and to the long-term sort of average level of probably about four, 450 basis points, or is, is, is a new level a somewhat lower level, whatever that number is. Um, and then of course, once the interest rate normalization process has been concluded, of course the process of shrinking the balance sheets must still start. And as I indicated earlier, you're talking about a balance sheet that has swelled roughly to about four and a half trillion US dollars. Um, it's just one note more than my annual paycheck. Um, so, you're talking about really massive, massive numbers. Um, and now bear in mind that is just the US. Bear in mind that um, both Europe and of course the Japanese are still engaged in, well, Japan, Japan we typically don't call it quantitative easing, we talk about it as qualitative easing. But um, they're still expanding their balance sheets um, and their process of normalization still needs to kick in. So what you have is um, a process of, of normalization that at the very least will be uh, quite protracted um, and I think therefore will mark probably a time of significant volatility. Um, you asked earlier about the whole question of valuations. One of the things that I always think about is that um, if interest rates rise and the risk-free rate rises, the discount rate increases, all things being equal, what happens to valuations? By definition, valuations should reduce, all things being equal. Now, obviously, what you do have is that the interest rate increase will be dependent on the economic performance, and so some of that may be offset by obviously improved real output within the economy, which will ameliorate some of of that. So in other words, 
All things being equal, valuations falls, but because profits and results are better, uh, fiscal um, deficits are smaller, that sort of offsets some of that. So how that exactly will play out is unclear. It's a long explanation to come back to the issue of Grexit. Quite frankly, it's very, very difficult to see um, because there's a lot of forces at play. Some of it has to do, of course, with the fact that there's very sensitive negotiations that are underway. Um, and it's very difficult to what extent the market once again has discounted that and whether there will be some dislodgement that occurs. Should there be a great exit? Um, is it contained to Greece? Does it affect the periphery? Does it spill over to emerging markets? It is very, very difficult to predict um, how that will play out. Um, I think the Greek economy certainly will be affected because one of the issues you would have is, of course, a currency mismatch. Um, but even that is unclear what's the implications of a Grexit. Does it mean or a default? Does that automatically mean an exit from the euro um, area? Um, and if, if that does happen, because I presume there's quite complex arrangements around the treaties and what the treaties provide for, one of the things I do know and what would be clear is that um, if your assets is in a different currency that's much depreciated and your liabilities in a much stronger um, currency, then um, you do have some challenges, I would suggest. Channel? Makes me want to grab for a glass of ouzo. <laughs> <laughs> have a question at the front? Yeah. Are you concerned about the level of real rates in South Africa relative to other emerging countries like Brazil, India, um, and you think it will exacerbate our vulnerability given also the level of our trade deficit or our return deficits compared to those countries? Yeah, just a quick response to that. I think we set monetary policy looking at our domestic conditions. Um, bear in mind inflation um, reached its bottom point. I can't remember when last we were at 3.9%. Reached its bottom point in February. And as a matter of fact, that gives one some reprieve because, of course, low inflation means that the real rate has moved slightly positive um, because it, if the repo rate is 5.75 and your uh, inflation is 3.9, that gives you effectively a positive real rate. So, first of all, monetary authority sets um, monetary policy based on their own economic fundamentals. And I think it was appropriate given um, the weak economic outlook. And bear in mind, even when we breached the inflation target last year, it was fairly temporarily um, in nature. And so, therefore, the uh, monetary policy setting, as far as I'm concerned, was absolutely appropriate um, for the conditions that prevailed. What we said in our statement last week is that um, there seems to be a buildup of inflationary pressures and which I've alluded to in my speech um, and we will be watching that quite carefully. We are concerned because bear in mind which we also said in our speech last week and which I repeated in my uh, comments earlier is that that is based on electricity um, price increases that we've modeled at about 13%. And should those settlements be higher, um, that may have 
an impact in terms of it may push out the inflation forecast. And if one of the challenges that we've had is, is that inflation expectations remain sticky on the upper, towards the upper end of the, even if you look at inflation expectations as it had come down on the previous readings, the, although average inflation expectations, I think, had dropped at its low point to 5.4, you must bear in mind that there's three components of the inflation expectations, that of analysts, that of business, and that of labor. And what had pulled that down was that of the analysts. But analysts, with all due respect, aren't price setters within the economy. And that you, what you found is, is that the price setters within the economy was hovering around, I think, 5.9 and 5.8, if I remember the, the numbers correctly. Because I think analysts was down the low force if it wasn't 4, maybe 1, 4.1, 4.2. And so if inflation expectations remain sticky, despite the fact that inflation, headline inflation, had decelerated to the extent where it's almost approaching the bottom end of the target range, uh, one has to be some concerns as you look through and you start seeing that inflationary pressures are building up because that could lead um, to obviously clear second and third round effects um, and therefore sort of increase the price pressures within the economy. And our mandate, we are very clear, is price stability. And we stand ready to act um, should um, the inflation outlook deteriorate to an extent where uh, we are extremely uncomfortable with it. Francois? Um, African Bank, when, uh, and I understand it's under negotiations, you probably can't comment on the current settlements being proposed, but when it went bust, uh, the Reserve Bank stepped in and basically protected the small depositors, not that there were many, and the senior debt took a haircut, proposed haircut of 10 cents on the rand to get 90 cents recovery rate. Should we see that as a template for future bank failures? Um, look, the issue is, is that um, a central bank is a lender of last resort, right? And our mandate is financial stability and under appropriate conditions, um, we will fulfill that role. In terms of the template going forward, we are busy and we should be publishing soon with National Treasury and the Financial Services Board also gave input, um, sort of a policy or position paper regarding resolution. And the, the proposed framework will be aligned with the 25 key attributes of the Financial Stability Board. And I think um, once that is published, I think it's then best for us to engage because then that is in, pub in the public and people can, will have the opportunity to comment, after which we would then um, proceed to process those comments and to obviously start working on a, um, a draft bill, which once again, in terms of our democratic parliamentary processes, will be uh, open to public comment and, and people also at that juncture have the opportunity to submit comments. But I saw the organizer there showing me this sign, so I don't know what that means, <laughs> whether my life is in danger or not. <laughs> but I think um, she looks formidable. So I think um, on that note, I'd like to take my leave, and thank you very much, and um, everything the best.